It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm William Hosea and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast and our 16th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Before we get underway this evening, Cornelius has an important message regarding the WFHB Fall Fund Drive. Thanks, William. Along with our phenomenal guests, I just wanted to thank you our committed volunteer corps for all you do directly behind the scenes or as co-anchors that bring value and relevance to bring it on. And to our listeners, 16 years of broadcasting this multiple award-winning show could never have materialized without your support. We are also indebted to WFHB for providing the, for, uh, the platform and technical experts that help us project our voices every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. I have a call to action for all of you. During tonight's broadcast, Please open your heart and tangibly donate a gift between $100 and $25 level to sustain the operations at WFHB, and by doing so, sustain Bring It On. I gave earlier today because I will not ask you to support what I have not first supported myself. I deeply appreciate your support and involvement with this evolving program. I thank you in advance for your contribution to WFHB's Fall Fund Drive. Your donation helps keep these frequencies dedicated to diverse local programming. Now. On with the show. That said, with uh, less than 10 days before our presidential election, we wanted to discuss how our democracy and democratic institutions remain under attack by foreign and even domestic forces. And to help us do that, we have invited back Ashley Woodard Henderson. Ms. Henderson identifies as an Afrolation or Black Appalachian working class woman born and raised in Southeast Tennessee. She is the co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Tennessee, formerly the Highlander Folk School. So Ashley, welcome back to Bring It On. It's welcome, great Ashley. to be back. Good to see y'all. Awesome. So th the last time you joined us, we talked about the, then what was the upcoming Defending Democracy, a virtual town hall with a focus on confronting voter suppression and white supremacy in the new millennium. So let's just reflect back on that a little bit and, and tell us how that how that worked out for you. Yeah, I mean, what a, a incredible experience it was to, despite our physical distance, be able to build such strong social solidarity with one another, um, which I think is, is the very much the Highlander way. Uh, we were able to come together under the leadership of Amrita and, and all of our, of our family at IU and uh, and actually touched like hundreds of people in the span of a couple of days. Uh, and my small part of that was being able to talk about what organizing is, how do you do it? What are the principles and values behind it? Um, and then we talked a little bit about like the current landscape and what people can do to actually change the material conditions of our people. And what I also know happened uh, outside of just my little, my little interventions <laughs> Uh, was like this incredible opportunity for folks to learn about the grassroots organizations that are right there in Bloomington that have been doing incredible life-saving work to fight against white supremacy, uh, to fight for other social justice and economic justice interventions. Uh, and it was an incredible time. I'm really, really excited for 
uh, the the ways that we'll continue to build each other with each other after this. Okay, and uh, some of the other things we also discussed were your roots in Tennessee, growing up in Appalachia, how you described yourself uh, as an Afrolation. You know, I got to come up with something to describe myself, you know, combine where I grew up with and some of my ideals. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, we but talked you, about Black people in the Midwest as the, the children of the Great Migration, We, you know. And, that's and that was very interesting. And you really opened... Uh, our eyes about the role of Black folks from Appalachia in the fight against racism and the effect on the Black vote in the South. But what I really wanted to start off with and to focus on is, is early voting in that area and across the country, because we're seeing a couple of record-breaking occurrences across the country. One is the voter suppression and voter suppression attempts, i.e. court cases, restrictions on polling locations, and drop-off boxes, and we all know what the governor of Texas did, and and fortunately, he that uh, order was overturned by a court ruling. But what some of the good things that we're seeing also at record-breaking levels are long lines and voter turnout. People are really showing a persistence and a desire to vote that we've never seen before. So, what what kind of voter suppression efforts are we seeing in your area? And how are Black folks in Appalachia responding to that? Yeah, I mean, again, I don't think that, we talked about this last time, I don't think that any of these phenomena are particularly unique in the South. Um, voter suppression is an is a, is a, is a issue that's happening all across the country, not just in my region. Um, but what I, I imagine what we're seeing in the South is probably similar to what folks are seeing even in the Midwest, right? That um, we're seeing long lines actually aren't good signs for democracies, right? Like. It actually should be that there's enough voting machines and enough polling places that people don't have to stand in line for hours. It is also great that we're seeing people, our people do that, right? They are showing up, they are showing out. We saw North Carolina break records. We saw Georgia break records. We saw Texas break records, right? Um, we saw Tennessee break records, right? We, we are seeing the polls actually trend in the favor of the Democratic Party um, towards, towards this neoliberal intervention instead of this fascist and authoritarian one. And all of that is good news, right? Um, we, we, we know that. Um, what's real though, is that white supremacist violence and threats of white supremacist violence are also real, right? Uh, we've seen uh, Ku Klux Klan members leaving flyers in the mailboxes of people who have Joe Biden signs saying that this time is a social visit, next time it'll be one about business, right? We've, we've seen all of those things, but what's real is that's the American way, right? That like white supremacist threats um, are, as, are as American as this place. And so I think that what we've, to me, the more interesting story is what are people doing about it, right? We've seen Blueprint in North Carolina sending people to the same polling. Like, if, I don't know if y'all know this, but in a lot of our states during the early vote, you can vote anywhere in your, in your district, not just the precinct, right? You can vote anywhere in the district. And so we've seen folks encouraging people to go on the same day, right? To make it a cultural and joyous event to go and cast your vote, to participate in the fight for democracy. Um, they're going and they're making sure that there's joy at the polls. They're making sure that folks have food and PPE. They're making sure that folks are protected and safe uh, and de-escalating any, anything that would happen that could keep our people from staying in the line and, and actually casting our vote. I think the more important question is, well, if there is voter suppression and we know there is, what are people going to tactically be telling our folks to make sure that their vote actually gets casted and counted, right? So if you are voting by mail, which is an awesome thing to be doing, 
Um, what we need you to do is not just put your your ballot in the box and think that it's done, right? We need you to track it and we need, need you to make sure that it's cured if, it, if there are any mistakes on your ballot, right? If you actually are gonna go in person and early vote, that's awesome too. And if there's for any reason a poll worker that tells you you should vote by provisional ballot, you should push to make sure that you, like if you, you should see if you actually have to vote by provisional ballot, even if you have to call your election commission uh, to see if you can vote on a regular schmegular ballot. And then if you do vote by provisional ballot, you need to make sure that you're calling your election commission over and over and over again until you know that that ballot has gone through. Um, so there, there's much that we need to do, not only just by filling out the bubbles on the ballot, but actually making sure that that vote gets counted. You know, I've been reading and seeing in the news that in certain places, a lot of the ballot boxes have actually been burned. Um, and that, you know, we're talking about voter suppression, but that brings up a, a whole different problem, because if you voted once, you think you voted once um, and you think it possibly your ballot has not gotten in, you vote again, that could be fraud. So. How is that working across the country? And are, are there remedies if that happens in a certain district, if you can double check to see if your ballot has actually been counted? Yeah, absolutely. So first, if you believe that anything suspicious is happening with your vote, if you are seeing any patterns, any concerns, I need you to take this number down. I need you to call 1-866-OUR-VOTE. 1-866-O-U-R. B-O-T-E, 1-866-OUR-VOTE. Um, if you have any sort of suspicion of voter suppression or intimidation, uh, we need you to call that number. That's, that's, your, that's your who you're going to call for support number, right? Um, and I promise you that there are folks that are, are attorneys, that are experts in, in voting rights law, um, and movement-oriented folks that are doing everything in our power to track the patterns and to make sure you know what to do about it in the place that you are. So again, if you have any suspicions of voter suppression, whether it's like, I don't have the information to know like how to even figure out the process. Um, if you don't, if you know that like your ballot actually hasn't been counted yet, et cetera, once you've casted your vote, uh, you call 1-866-OUR-VOTE and we'll do our best to make sure that we can direct you in the right path to make sure that your vote gets counted. Um, you know, and I think that the, the second thing that I would say is like, if you, I mean, obviously, you know, these, where these things are allegedly happening, are clearly it's happening in places where uh, the, the, the suspicion is that folks are voting a referendum around like Black Lives Mattering, right? It's a referendum of believing that everybody should have health care. It's a referendum around believing that everyone should have living wage jobs and the right to organize in their workplace, et cetera, right? It's like people that have progressive politics, right? Um, or at least there's an assumption that they do. And so I think being able to track those patterns and to make sure that you like know the number of your election commission or your board of electors so that you can actually say like, hey, I'm just checking. Even if they all they tell you is like, yeah, your vote got counted. It's like, okay, cool. Can I get that in confirmation? Like, how do I know, right? It's the, the, the point of voting isn't just like getting up and going to the polls or getting up and going and putting your ballot in the box, right? The point is to make sure that you track that vote all the way to the conclusion, right? And, and so again, what I would encourage folks to do is not just cast your vote, but track your vote and make sure that you've done everything that you can to make sure that it's been counted uh, after, you know, for most of us after November 3rd. You mentioned earlier about the white supremacy, uh, what they're trying to do to bully us, to scare us, to, to keep us from the polls. I voted already, I could care less about them, but have there been instances outside of polling places where there have been, because 
uh, I don't even like to use his name. The person that's sitting in the White Office in the White House right now kind of told his folks to get out there and make sure that there wasn't going to be any cheating at the ballots and this and that. So have, have there been any problems that you've heard of of white supremacist uh, Trump followers trying to bully and intimidate voters? Absolutely. Absolutely. And all over the country. But I think the more important question is, again, what have our people been doing? Because what we don't want to do is scare our people from going to the polls, y'all. That's not what we want to do. What's real is Black people have been risking their lives to go vote for, for generations. This is not a new phenomenon. Um, and Donald Trump is at the origin of white supremacy, right? Um, so what I would say is like, sure, absolutely. I've heard of like folks driving with trucks with Confederate flags around the polls. I've heard about uh, you know, folks, uh, you know, trying to follow people home and all, all of that kind of stuff, right? That's a, all of those stories, sometimes hyperbolic and sometimes very true. Um, I've heard all of those things. But what's real is that what I've also heard about is Black Men Build, right? An incredible national organization of Black men in this country who have been saying, we're going to protect our people at the polls, right? Who've been, been trained on how to do election defense and who have been showing up and showing out to make sure that all of us have everything that we need to safely be able to execute our right to vote. What I've been hearing is like incredible people in our communities up to and including really famous people like Ava DuVernay saying that she's going to go and be a poll worker, right? I've heard incredible stories about Live Nation showing up at people's polling places and having like DJs spinning on the ones and twos outside the polls, right? We can use our culture and Black joy experiences to be able to de-escalate these scenarios, right? And that's actually the more important thing is that people, you know, sororities and fraternities going and marching to the step, strolling to the polls, right? Churches, synagogues, mosques, having souls to the polls um, on, the, on the weekends, right? On Sabbath days, on high holy days. And so what, there's so many more stories about how our people are making such a, what could be a terrifying experience, not just because of white supremacy, but also because of the fear of a global pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. Right. There's a lot of reasons to be scared, but there's even more ways that I'm seeing communities come together across our differences to ensure the safety and security of our people as they go and they cast their ballots. You know, you uh, you, you made a very interesting point about Ava DuVernay going to work at the polls. And you're right. I had not heard about that. But what I did hear plenty about and what's trending is uh, Ice Cube and uh, 50 Cent coming out in support of Donald Trump. But Again, going back to what you said earlier, that that's typical, you know, putting the focus in the wrong area when it when it comes to black folks. Uh, something else I wanted to ask you about. A few weeks ago, I heard I heard the uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. He said, if Democrats win this election or if they take back the the Senate and win the presidency, we will never win another election again. And there's several ways that you can take that. But the way I interpret that to mean is if Democrats do gain control of both houses and the White House, what they'll do is everything that they can to make it easier uh, for people to vote, for one, to remove all of these election barriers, maybe even go so far as to uh, strengthen the Vote Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court pretty much gutted uh, a little while back. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things, y'all. Like, yeah. one, I think that I want to start with the ice cube and, and 50 cents, and I want to get to the, the actual question. One is that, you know, we only get what we're organized to win, right? I'm going to start there and I'm going to end there. We only get what we're organized to win. Frederick Douglass said, 
power concedes nothing without a demand. And Charlene Carruthers went even further to say power concedes nothing without an organized demand, right? And what I would offer is that I can't be mad at the ice cubes. That's not true. I can absolutely be mad at the ice cubes of 50 cents of the world. But if I haven't done what I need to do to make sure that people know that we actually already built plans, like the vision for Black Lives, like the Breathe Act, like the Thrive Agenda, like the Red, Black, and Green New Deal, like the Green New Deal, uh, like the People's Charter from the Working Families Party, and so many other things, like the Red, Black, and Green New Deal, like the Red New Deal, right? There's so many policy platforms out there that we actually didn't need someone who is not directly connected to grassroots communities to reinvent the wheel and quite frankly, to water down our demands and give it to someone who has made it very, very clear that they're on the side of white nationalists and not on the side of Black Lives Matter, right? So what we need to be doing is actually communicating with our people. And I'm not just, I'm not just talking about the ice cubes and the 50 cents of the world, but to the people that actually consume their art, right? What does it mean that like my brother doesn't know all about the policy demands that I've been building with his neighbors, right? Like we need to be doing the political education work to make sure that people know that these things exist so that when distractions like this happen, people are like, that's weird. That's weird, it doesn't make any sense, right? Versus being like in a back and forth about black men not being connected to the grassroots, right? The black men are never my enemy, the state and, and white supremacy is. And then what I would say to the, to the point that you're making around, you know, Democrats making it easier for folks to vote and Democrats, uh, if a Democrat wins, Republicans never winning again. What I would offer y'all is that they said that same thing when Barack Obama got elected, right? And, and we didn't see the end of voter suppression. In fact, what we saw in the Daily did a great podcast about it today from the New York Times about what the Electoral College actually does in regards to racialized disenfranchisement, right? What we know is that these winner state, these winner take all state laws is actually like making it so that like a hundred or even less sometimes voters can dis can totally annihilate the votes of millions of people because of the Electoral College, right? So, and that's typically racialized, right? So what we need to be doing isn't just saying that like, if the Democrats win, we can all take a break because it's all gonna be so easy. If that was the case, we would have already been living in the, in the utopian beloved community that we all deserve, right? Instead, what we need to be doing is preparing to, to vote like we've never voted before, to make a mandate about what should happen in the first 100 days by executive order and by hopefully a new Congress, right? That actually is, is more representative of our people. So I don't personally believe that like the Democratic Party will save us and be um, our liberators. What I'm voting for is my next target, right? Not my, not my savior. I'm voting for my next, my next organizing opportunity. And what I know is that there's absolutely a difference between a Trump administration that is fascist, that is authoritarian, that is, is, is abusing powers left and right, who is literally someone who, who criminally is negligent and is inhumane, a man that has split up our families, a man that has incarcerated our people, a man that has put his own profit over the well-being of people in this country versus you know, the Democratic Party, which also has done its, its fair share of harm, y'all. I'm not gonna lie to you. I, I made that promise when we talked last time. I will never lie to you. They've done their fair share of harm. They have not been as brave and as bold as we deserve. Right, But there is a fundamental difference between what we would get under their leadership and what we would get under the leadership of the GOP in the right wing. We would get more white nationalism under them. We would get more like conservative judges that strip away generations worth of our people's efforts to build 
a world with civil rights and human rights for all of us. And I think that is really why it matters to go vote this time, right? And I know that we say that to people every election cycle, that this election is the one that really matters, right? But truly, if you haven't seen over the last three years, the impact, right? The impact particularly that negatively impacted black and brown and indigenous people, then, then this is it, this is it, right? And there's no $1,200 stimulus check that wasn't even Donald Trump's to sign. Uh, that can make up for the three years of harm that he has done to our community. So I truly, truly believe lives are, and I'd say that as someone who doesn't believe that voting is the only tactic to get to liberation, I believe that this one is critical for the ability to save lives in this country and quite frankly, all across the world. We cannot afford another four years of this fascist and authoritarian and white supremacist regime. I have a couple of questions. And, and one, you brought up uh, a lot of the different groups and organizations where there are uh, different policy platforms that I was unaware of. How can we do better in getting that information, uh, those organizations out to all? You know, I look at Facebook and sometimes I get so frustrated with the daily BS, nothing substantial, where that, that would be a wonderful place to get some of those organizations known. But then something else that you mentioned, the voting. Why, what can we do? I mean, we, we preach it, we're blue in the face to get our people out to the polls. I heard Shaquille O'Neal, and I hate to, to just bring one person up to say that this is gonna be the first time in his entire life that he's voted. I mean, that means he didn't vote for Barack Obama. And, and so what can we do to, to let them know that, as you mentioned, it's not the only way but especially this election, it is so critical for each of us to get our voices out there to be heard. Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things in terms of the, the question about like, how do we get people to know more about the orgs and platforms? It's like, you actually have to do that work, right? It's actually work, right? You actually have to be like, who are the people that I trust, right? That, that might know something about this issue and how can I use my ability to Google search, my ability to talk to my peers, my ability to reach out to folks like Ash uh, from, you know, from from all of these organizations uh, to get connected, right? Um, and and once you find one organization, it is very likely that they are amplifying the work of other organizations that you can also trust around specific issues. So, for example, um, if you found the 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 Highlander Center, right, then it every week we talk about the work that other organizations are doing, very literally in our newsletter, the View from the Hill, um, on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, and then, you know, you might find through the Highlander Center, the Movement for Black Lives, right, which is 150 plus organizations all across the country that are fighting in defense of black lives. It's leading the largest social movement in U.S. history. And through the through the Movement for Black Lives, you might find organizations, you know, like Freedom Inc. in Madison, Wisconsin. You might find organizations like BLM Bloomington, right? You might find organizations like all sorts of things, right? And and that might lead you to things like the rising majority, the multiracial coalition of forces, the movement of movements that's fighting for a democratic anti-racist left, right? And through that work, you might find something called the front line, which is actually the folks that are gonna be making sure that we not only get our people to the polls, but that we defend the vote, right? That we count every ballot and that we move into the first hundred days as a united front ready to win for the liberation of all people. So. I think that the way that you find out about these platforms and these organizations is by being committed to finding it, right? I didn't, I didn't come to movement because I knew all the organizations in the country and in the world. I came into movement because I found one organization and that one organization introduced me to so many other people 
Um, and I made a commitment to knowing who was out there and what they were up to and how that was going to impact my life because I believed that for me to be free, I needed to know that information and not just be dependent on other people to tell me about it. So I think one is like just making the commitment that you'll do the research and that you'll do the the, the paying attention to actually see these things. Um, and I'm again, I'm down to to again point people in a particular direction. You should check out the Breathe Act, which would be the 21st Century Civil Rights Act of our time. You should check out organizations like. Uh, NARC and in Cobra that have been doing work around reparations. You should check out the movement for Black Lives that in 2016 launched a vision for Black Lives policy platform that has hundreds of policy demands that have come from grassroots Black communities. Um, and then you should also be intentional about checking out the Working Families Party and the People's Charter. You should check out the Thrive Agenda. You should check out all of these things. What can we do to get our people to the polls? Again, you know, my daddy would say, ain't nothing to it but to do it, Cornelius. <laughs> Ain't nothing to it but to do it, right? So I feel like we let it's and I, and again, I think it's it's finger painting, not rocket science, right? It's literally like getting people to the polls, right? What we do is we talk to people about going to the polls a lot. We say we finger wag at them. You should go vote. You should go to the polls. You should do that. But how often have you taken your car and picked up your grandmama and them and literally driven them and then driven them home? Well, Ashley, I, I want to comment on that because yeah. our Masonic Lodge, our Masonic Lodge over the past five elections yeah, yeah. have a van to where we take, we will pick up, take whatever you need. And probably in those years, we've had maybe the same four people contact us every year. It is right. so, so then my question becomes, why are you waiting for people to contact you? Let me tell you about what I've done. Just let, let me just tell you about what I've done. And this is not even the smartest or only way. I was in Georgia. Uh, when Stacey Abrams ran in the primary and the general election for to be the first black woman governor of the state of Georgia. I was there when she won the election. I was also there when Brian Kemp stole it, right? And But let me tell you about the, the election day, actually election night in Georgia, the night of the, the last night of the general election. I was there and, and had heard horse, I was in Atlanta and I heard horror stories about what was happening in Gwinnett County voter suppression, intimidation, po the poll machine, like the, the voting machines not working, people standing in line for seven hours in a precinct that had seven machines and only three of them worked, right? I was hearing all the horror stories. And so I asked my, my friends who were actually running the campaign, like, where should I go? And they were like, get to Gwinnett. So I got in my car with three other volunteers and we drove down to Gwinnett, right? I got to Gwinnett and they had us door knocking. They had sent us lists and we literally would go, we'd knock on doors and we'd say, hey, have you voted yet? Um, and if they had, we'd say, thank you. If they hadn't, we would say, okay, cool. Like, can you go? We still got a few hours left. Like, can you go right now? And they would go, right? Then we found out that there had been some litigation to extend the polling hours because, the, because of the voter suppression, right? So people would have more time to vote because so many people had gotten to vote because of things that were outside of their control, right? So instead of the polls closing at like seven, they were going to close at like midnight or something ridiculous, right? Like we got a, a pretty significant extension. And so we got more lists. But y'all know, how many people trying to go door knock at some black person's house at nine o'clock at night? Nobody, right? So I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to where I think people might be congregating. I'm going to go to the gas station. And I'm going to ask people at the gas station, have you voted yet? And if they haven't voted, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to put them in my car. 
I'm going to drive them to the polls and then I'm going to drive them back to their car at the gas station so that I know for sure I did everything in my power to get out the vote, right? So I'm not just waiting for people that already vote to call me to say they need a ride. I'm also not waiting for people who have never voted and might be voting for the first time. to. I'm not going to assume that they even know to call me. I'm going to go to where I think they might be. I'm going to ask them as a sister in spirit and in social justice if they would come with me. Trust me. Come with me. I'll do everything in my power to make sure that your vote, that this is not a waste of your time. To the polls, right? So, so I'm saying to, to my brothers in, in, in Masonic lodges all over the country, I'm saying to my brothers and sisters in national panhellenic organizations, I'm saying to every community of faith leader, I'm saying like, yo, y'all, we cannot wait for people to know that we're the do-gooders they should trust. We should go and show them why. Thank you. Yes. Go okay. Get go get them. <laughs> for our listening audience, we're speaking with Ashley Woodard Henderson, co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Tennessee. So, Ashley, speaking about getting out the vote or or impacting the vote, Donald Trump has no former presidents, Republican presidents endorsing him, not a one. Um, and beyond that, there are just a, a long list of uh, retired military generals and admirals, uh, intelligence, uh, uh, former intelligence cabinet members, uh, uh, people from different administrations, uh, Democratic and Republican, Um, and even former governors. But the, the point is you have all of these people from the Republican party. The thing that they have in common is they're all former. So what, type of influence, I mean, do these people really even have any influence on other Republicans to switch their votes and endorse this uh, Democratic president? I mean, I would say that if they're not going to endorse him, that they should say who who they should be voting for, right? Like, if if I tell you not to eat carbs, but I don't tell you what to do, then I'm not actually helping you change your diet, right? So I think they should, if they're going to be bold, they should be bold. Uh, what I would say is, I guess I would ask y'all a question. Can you name a sitting general? No, that won't happen. Right? Can you name a Republican governor? Holcomb, because he's our governor. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm going to give you one. Right? Um, oh, wait, I thought you meant, can I name one who's who's uh, declaring their support? Yeah, I mean, either way, right? Oh, yeah, I can name several of them now. Either way. But, but what I would imagine is that, like, regular smuggler people in Bloomington, maybe not. Because actually those people don't necessarily impact their daily lives, right? Or they don't necessarily see how those folks impact their daily lives, right? So what I would offer is that, but, you know, again, I'm a pull from my country backing. Let's not major in the minor and flunk the major here. What actually matters is that Black people being mobilized to vote at 2016 level. Black men being organized not to vote for Trump in the double digits, double digits like they did in 2016. Um, and, and black women going out to vote actually is going to make all the difference. So I'm not sure why. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Um, so what I'm saying is ultimately the long story short is that 
we can get caught up in the distraction of the political theater, or we can make sure that our people, young people, black people, brown people, indigenous people, women, uh, other other folks that are gender nonconforming, poor people, working families actually get out and vote. And it won't matter what these folks are doing or not doing. Everything about the decision about who will live at Pennsylvania Avenue is in some ways in our in our power. And so, again, the, the primary thing to be focused on is, are we getting our people to, to the polls? Are we getting our people to the polls so that we can make sure that this is a referendum in support of social justice efforts, right? And that's, that's, that's the work right now. So, you know, do I think that they should be bolder and say that, like, Trump is a white supremacist and a fascist and an authoritarian and that we cannot support that? Absolutely. Am I going to wait till they do that to be able to mobilize our people? Absolutely not in the last, you know, less than two weeks before the most important election of my lifetime. You know, you, you mentioned earlier uh, about Donald Trump and, and, and some of his, uh, that he was not the cause of white supremacy. And that's, I mean, it's, it's been, white supremacy was what America was built on. The one thing that that really seems to bother me lately is he seems to have embolden them to come back uh, with with their uh, philosophies. It's kind of troubling that so many people, so many of our neighbors um, support this man. And to me, that's a, a, a huge underlying problem, even larger than the administration. What is it gonna take? What can we do to bring us all to one accord? Um, it, it, that, that's, that's more puzzling to me actually than Donald Trump. Yeah, I don't think there's any there's, I don't think there's any easy answer to that question, Cornelius. I think that like what we have to show our people is one, that we have built spaces and social movements where they belong. One, right, all people. Two, we need to train and teach our folks that there's no such thing as neutrality, right? Your support for Donald Trump is not neutral. Your, your sitting out the election is not neutral, right? Your uh, a, a attempt to say like, oh, I'm apolitical. I don't really get involved in that stuff. It's not neutral. You can't be neutral on a moving train is what Mouse Horton, one of the founders of the, of the Highlander Center used to say. And so what I would offer is what we have to do in this moment where we, the Movement for Black Lives has, has mobilized 26 million people in this country this year, right? Again, building the largest social movement in US history. What that means is that now we have an opportunity to absorb these people, to help support them as they find what their meaningful engagement in this work looks like. Um, and what we have to do is recognize this as an all hands, no sharp elbows moment where the doors of our movements are open um, and to make sure that we are helping folks like along their lifelong journey of learning uh, to, to recognize that what's good for black people, what's good for poor people, what's good for women and other oppressed and marginalized and targeted communities actually benefits everyone. Don't believe me just because I said it. Let me tell you how I know. When, when our people abolished the enslavement of Africans, it was good for this country, right? When we fought for electoral justice and reconstruction, it was good for everybody. When the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act passed, it was good for white people. When we passed affirmative action, guess who is the primary benefactor of affirmative action in this country? White women. White women, it was good for everybody, right? When we end climate change, right? When we actually turn the tide, that will be good for everybody. When we all wear our masks, it's good for everybody, right? It's, it's, we've got 
so many examples of how these progressive changes, these, these progressive ways of thinking where it's not just about me, it's also about us, uh, has, has benefited everyone. So I think, how do we get our neighbors to, to see our, our humanity and vote like our lives are dependent on it? I think it's through actual human engagement with them saying like, do you see, do you value my humanity? Do you see it? Um, and showing them that you value theirs, right? Again, I don't think this is rocket science. I think it's finger painting. We need to be about the work of building human relationships, right? That's the, that's the, that's the wealth that we have, even the poorest of us, cash poorest of us. The wealth that we have is relationship and people power. And I think that we have lost the great art of knowing how to talk to each other, how to engage with each other, how to build relationship across our differences. So to me, if there was a, at least a, a one next step I would take if I felt like my neighbor didn't see my humanity would be to see if I could engage them in a conversation that could change that, right? I'm not saying you, to put yourself in harm's way. I'm not telling yourself to beat your head up against a brick wall if they've already made a decision and it's not shifting. But what I am saying is that I know for a fact that you don't organize bases, you don't build people power without talking to people and helping them see another way. Yesterday, um, Barack Obama came out swinging with a big stick. He talked about Trump's taxes, his Chinese bank accounts, in which he withdrew, what, $25 million his first year in office. He talked about his incompetence on COVID, how he left, literally left them a playbook, corruption, and several other things. Um, at this point, most people have made up their minds about voting. Is this going to help... Uh, Either, either change anybody's mind or push these uh, anyone sitting on the fence or even push people out who have decided that they're not going to vote? What, what impact is this going to have at this hour? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it was in it was in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So, you know, I think I think for folks that were paying attention to Pennsylvania, they probably already know how they're going to vote. Right. Uh, for folks that were sitting on the fence, I don't know that he said anything that was particularly progressive or enlightening. Um, to be to be 100 with you. I, I don't, I don't think, I think it was like refreshing because people miss him. I think it was refreshing uh, because it felt like he was like being sharp, you know, uh, and saying stuff that he maybe couldn't have said when he was still the president, right? Um, and I think that was refreshing to people, but quite frankly, for folks that were sitting on the fence, I don't know that it moved anything. What I think was important about Obama being in, in Pennsylvania yesterday is that for people that were feeling disheartened, for people that were feeling like a lack of morale, for people that were feeling scared, right? Um, I think that it was a boost to their spirit and to their morale as a community uh, to see the first black president of the United States there and 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 campaigning for for a particular candidate, right? And so, do I think it was um, again? I don't believe in neutrality. So, do I think that it moved some of our people to being committed to getting their vote casted? Absolutely. Do I think for folks that were in kind of the middle of the road that that moved them in a particular direction? Maybe if they were waiting on Barack to make it clear where he was going to stand, which was never really a secret, right? Um, but for folks outside of that that sort of like East Coast bubble that were right there and and, and touching it, plus the folks that are like already kind of activated and kind of have their mind decided about like what they're going to do, I don't know that it, it actually moved a whole lot of votes. I think what might, depending on how it goes tonight, is the debate. Um you know, though I do think that most people have made up their minds about if they're going to vote, who they're going to vote for, et cetera. Uh, but I do think that this debate is going to be something to pay attention to. I don't think we've ever seen an election cycle like this. You know, I had actually decided after that first debate, I was not going to watch the second one 
But now that they're going to have a cut the mic button, I think I might go ahead and tune in for a minute or two, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually that, and we'll see how it works, That you know, from the little bit that I can tell, it sounds like what is happening is that they have opening statements for two minutes uninterrupted, and that in that time, the mic, the, the mic of the, the other candidate is already muted. Um, so it's, I don't even know that it's particularly a cut the mic button that they get to use at their discretion. We'll see. We'll see. Um, my hope and prayer is that we actually get a debate, right? We didn't yeah. actually get a debate in the first round. My hope is that we actually get a debate and that it's actually about policies that impact all communities, not just the communities in very specific battleground states, but it's like the issues and the policies that actually matter to all of us. And quite frankly, I haven't heard Donald Trump talk about policy yet. Not one time. He's not able to. Um, I have to ask you about another important issue, which uh, Democrats are kind of shying away from at this point, but stacking the courts. A few weeks ago, we had a uh, constitutional law professor on, and he was totally against that that concept of stacking the courts. And I think he, if, if I, I'm going to try and quote him, not quote him, but uh, summarize what he said correctly, um, what he was concerned about was getting too far away from the norm. Now, other people would say, you do whatever you need to do to stabilize the patient, and then you can start and, and, and treat the illness. Do whatever you have to do to right the ship, and then you can start worrying about putting things back on course. So how do you feel either way about that? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things, right? One is that we've got to get out of the habit of treating symptoms and not treating root causes, right? Yeah. Um, that, you know, what's happening with this, this uh, Supreme Court nomination process is, is absurd, is, is, is problematic in a thousand ways. Um, and, and I think we should be concerned about what this nominee uh, would do in terms of rolling back decades, generations worth of, of, of political gain. Um, what we know for certain um, is that she barely answered any questions during this, the, the, the hearings, right? What, what she did say was like what she wouldn't do and what, she, you know, she wouldn't necessarily not decide who the next president of the United States is gonna be, right? She wouldn't necessarily make sure that people had access to reproductive justice and, uh, and, and rights, right? She, you know, it was very clear in the absence of answers that she was answering what she would and would not do as a judge. But what's real is just that one seat uh, is not the full crisis of what's happening in the judiciary, right? The fact that this man has appointed hundreds, literally hundreds of conservative judges uh, to federal judgeships uh, in the three years that he's been in office is something that we should be dramatically concerned about, right? And I'm not saying that to dodge the question about whether or not it's right or wrong to pack the courts. I'm not a constitutional expert. Uh, but what I know is that when the Constitution was written, it did not have a damn thing to do uh, with protecting my rights. In fact, it would have offered that like the, the founding fathers that wrote the document would have believed that I wasn't a human being. So what does it look like for me to just, I mean, I do believe in the power of the Constitution and, and particularly the ways that Black people have made it much more of an equitable and, and a transitionary document, a transformative document for our people. But what, what do I look like saying that what I want to do is to take us back to normal? Normalcy in this country has been harmful to my people. That is not my priority. And my priority is absolutely not to, to, to dictate the laws the way the founding fathers did. They were white supremacists. Some of them literally owned Black people, right? 
So do I believe in stacking the court? I don't know. I don't know, and I don't think most of us do. But what I know for sure is that if we stack the court and then a Republican wins the Electoral College, then what do we just do, right? We just gave them even more seats, right? So again, I think that like as a tactical intervention, it might be a platinum Band-Aid, and I'm not mad at that, especially under uh, a more progressive, a more liberal administration. But what I know for sure is that if we don't actually look at the, you know, if we don't have a 20... 50 year plan, right? That we might major in the minor and flunk the major again, y'all. We need to abolish the electoral college. We need to make sure that we get progressives in elected office. We need to take back the Senate and the House. We, you know, we need to take, we need to win. We need to win. And we need to actually push for progressive policies through the legislative branch. And we need to force the next administration, hopefully a new administration, uh, to use executive power to get some of our progressive demands through. Um, you know, and I think that depending on the way, you know, I think that Biden answered the question in the in the town hall as best as he could, right? It really whether or not stacking the court will be useful is yet to was yet to be determined um, until the hearings were out. And I'm excited to see uh, what he says about it tonight if it comes up at the debate. It's been the presidential election has been one of the major focuses that we've been dealing with. All righty, uh, right now a, a huge focus is the presidential election, but there's also some elections. Uh, Kentucky, Mitch McConnell, just around the country that uh, are could be just as important, if not more important, than the presidential election. Have you seen much? Uh, uh, have you seen a lot of people get banding together to deal with a lot of these uh, Senate and congressional seats ar- across the country? Absolutely, I'm so excited about the the. Imp- I think I think Kentuckians might make the impossible possible. Right? <laughs> you know, like. Uh, I, and I don't say that just, I don't say that flippantly, you know, and, and I, and I know that some of our comrades that are also in Indiana have been a part of this movement, right? Is like the fight for justice for Breonna Taylor has mobilized so many people that are actually paying attention to up and down the ballot races, right? So I think that it is actually because of social movements that Mitch McConnell might see his last day in Congress. And I can't wait to dance <laughs> on the ruins of his electoral career, right? Um, I think, and I don't think just, you know, for seats like that, you know, we see like this incredible black woman running for Congress in Tennessee and, and, and actually has a possibility to make it, right? We're, we're seeing West Virginia can't wait, right? We're seeing folks moving in Georgia that have been fighting voter suppression even before uh, this electoral cycle. Um, you know, I think that there's so much potential that we could really win Congress. And I think that people are seeing that as a priority, but I don't think we stop there, right? I think we see people talking about what it means to elect folks in state and municipal seats that believe in defunding the police or divesting from the police and investing in, in sustainable, healthy, and, and, and equitable communities. I think we see folks talking about sheriff's races, right? And how we get some of these sheriffs, uh, based on the research of political research associates, some of these sheriffs that have been literally connected to white supremacists and anti-immigrant and anti-social uh, justice organizations, uh, get them out of those seats, right? What does it look like for us to make sure that we're voting uh, in progressive district attorneys, right? Um, what does it look like for us to be, you know, getting and, and to be running for these seats, right? I think about the work of the Black Campaign School and uh, Black PAC and Black Church PAC and all of the folks that have been doing everything in their power, not only to do get out the vote efforts, but also to make sure that we're developing the next generational cohort of Shirley Chisholm's and and Barbara Jordan's and Stacey Abrams's, right? Like that's that's the work. And so I think that absolutely voting down ballot is going to be critical. Absolutely, absolutely critical. And, and I would shout out the work of the Working Families Party that's been actually inspiring people all across the country to do that very thing. 
You know, I'm uh, I'm glad you brought up the Breonna Taylor case because, uh, as you know, recently um, a federal judge has ruled that grand jurors can talk about it and ordered uh, Daniel Cameron, I think his name is, to release transcripts. Have you heard anything from other than what's been in the news from any of the grand jurors. I, I recently heard an interview, a partial interview from one of the police officers who, who was there. Uh, have you heard anything about the transcripts? I have not yet heard anything about the transcripts. What I would say is that Daniel Cameron is a coward. Um, that he actually had the opportunity, particularly as a black man, to be on the right side of history, to bend the moral arc of the universe towards justice, and he did not. And I don't think that it was all in his power, right? I know that there are extenuating circumstances of the bureaucratic nature of the system that made it hard for him to indict uh, and convict. But what I know for certain is that he 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 is a disappointment to that community. And I hope uh, that folks continue to be in the streets saying so. I think that what's real, right, is that uh, the family has made a significant number of demands, right? Everybody wanted to talk about the fact that they got a payout or that they're getting a payout. But that's actually the, the 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 least of their demands, right? It's a distraction. It's, it's, they deserve that, right? But that doesn't bring Bianca back. And they loved her before we knew her name, right? What they've asked for is like policy change. And and to be honest, I think we need to be even, in, we need to interrogate those demands, right? And we need to support those demands and push for more, right? So for example, um, if, if they inevitably ban no-knock warrants, right? What's real is that no-knock warrants were banned uh, before in other places and Black people were still murdered, right? What we know for certain is that chokeholds are excessive force in many, in many scenarios, right? But it didn't stop Eric Garner from being murdered, right? So I think there's so many examples of how we've again put platinum band-aids on the gaping wound of, cr of criminal injustice, right? The, the criminal legal system of it that's just full of injustices is racialized and is gendered. And I think it's our turn to like actually put forward progressive policies like the Breathe Act, right? That, that divest our money from policing and prisons and incarceration and reinvest those dollars into sustainable, healthy and equitable communities, right? The solutions that actually come from our people and actually then creates even new incentivized money to help support states that are shrinking the scale and scope of policing in this country. Um, we need to pass that. And what we've seen is like incredible energy around it on the federal level. And what we're starting to see is people say, you know what, we don't just want that on the federal level. I'm gonna get my state legislature, my state Congress to pass it. Illinois is in conversations about a Breathe Act. I know our comrades in North Carolina, people in Georgia, folks in Tennessee, everywhere, folks are thinking about what it'll look like to make that bill relevant to their state law. And, and then on top of that, Folks are trying to figure out how they can break the bill apart to make it relevant on the municipal level. So I, I think that's important because not only what I why I think that's important is that I think that we are building multi-tactical strategies, right? We're protesting injustice, in like fighting against what happened to Brianna, like what happened to Freddie Gray, what happened to Tony McCade, what happened to to all of our comrades and, and that and our siblings that have been cut short, their lives have been cut short because of police violence and incarceration and the war on drugs and all of the other racialized things that have been happening to our people in this country. But that's, we're not just protesting. Protesting is important. We're not shifting from protesting. We'll protest until justice is served, right? But we're also doing political education around what abolition is. We're also doing work to build progressive legislation that, and policy demands that our people deserve. We're also out voting and getting people to run for elected office, right? We're using all of the tactical tools in our tactical tool belt to build this liberation road.
quickly, I, I had told William that we were going to wrap it up, but I do have one quick question for you. How do we get to the point where we force them, and you see I'm using the word force them, to vote against their best interests? Yeah, I mean, I think this this conversation about best interests is one that that we need to be, those of us that are in this work need to be writing and talking more about. Because I actually think that that, that if we believe that we know what's in the best interest of other people, then we actually are assuming that we know more about their lived conditions than they know for themselves, right? It's, it's high ego and it's low impact, right? And I know that for certain because I've seen for my whole entire life, people use the terminology of voting in your best interest and I haven't seen it win any like no, 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 election, I, right? I, but, but what I no, would I, say, I, and I, no, I heard I, the question, what okay. I would say is that what, 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 I determine as my best interest, one, is not necessarily the best interest of my community or my country, right? What we need is actually to be building collective interest and doing the work to build collective power. Because what's real is that folks talking crap about the South is Trump country, Appalachia is Trump country, and that people didn't vote in their best interest have no idea that Trump told coal miners that he was going to bring coal back, right? So they did think they were voting in their best interest, right? That, that Trump lied to people, that McConnell has lied to people and, told, and made them fearful of other communities. So they thought they were voting in their best interest. What we need to be doing is not conceding anybody in any territory and telling them and being in conversation with them about what they want, what their values are, and how we can actually see that come to fruition through voting and through policy and through organizing and through political education and through direct action, right? So I think that what our work isn't to get caught up in telling people what their best interests are. Our work is to, is to do the work to bring people together to figure out what our shared interests are and then to, to develop the strategies that actually walk out how we actually get to that beloved community. We're out of time, but I should have uh, questioned my, uh, had my question a little more clear. The representative, for instance, term limits. How do we get them to vote against themselves, not us? Not us. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I, mean, I, I think we. I don't think. I don't think we. I think we have to quit expecting that the the master's tools can dismantle the master's house in some ways, right? What does it look like to keep getting uh, establishment uh, politicians into these these positions that have continuously let our our communities down? I think what we have to do is two things. We have to get our people in those seats. Period. And we have to build the, the collective power to be able to make sure that we can hold them accountable, right? We, we got to do the work, not just in an election year, y'all. It's a cycle. And I think that that's like a really important note to end on is that, you know, this is not going to be an election night like we've ever seen before, right? You're not going to wait up till the polls close and then in a few hours know who won the popular vote. That's not going to, I mean, it, it's possible. I, and God knows I'm trying with everything I've got that we just like, we win in such big numbers that there's no question, right? But what's real is we've already heard this man not commit to a peaceful transfer of power. We've already heard this man months ago say he wasn't leaving the White House. We've all, we already know these things. He's our, we already heard him and share his game plan, right? We already heard his fascist playbook of saying that the, the election was manipulated, right? He's gonna do all the things he's already been doing, right? So we should expect that if we don't win it outright, uh, that we be ready to, to mobilize, right? Um, and that we be ready to make sure that our people are counting every vote, right? So what we should be telling our people right now is to get out to the vote, 
get out the vote, get out the polls. The next thing that we need to be doing is making sure that every ballot gets counted and that we not call the election until they happen. Right. We want to thank Ashley uh, Woodard Henderson, co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Tennessee, for joining us to discuss how our democracy and democratic institutions remain or under attack by foreign and even domestic forces. If you have not yet done so, we strongly encourage you to vote early and or plan your election day voting. And Ashley, I know you just like the rest of us anticipating uh, November the 3rd. So maybe we can reach out to you again to get some commentary post-election. Yeah, let me know. I'd love to help. Okay. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, we'd like to hear it. Please send your emails to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything with the African-American community and our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. That email address, once again, bringiton at wfhb.org. If you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about a calendar item that you've heard tonight, contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB News Department Director Cade Young. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effium with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. I'm Cornelius Wright. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.